You are listening to Books Are My People, a podcast for book lovers with book news, book recommendations, and ruminations on living a literary life in Los Angeles. This is episode 36, and I'm recording on Tuesday, November 10th. I was absolutely useless from November 3rd on. I couldn't read. I couldn't concentrate. I just sat around like a zombie in front of the news, which was totally unhealthy. But I was also on a lot of Zoom calls and group texts with friends. One Zoom call even lasted like five hours on election night. And that just saved my spirit as we waited and waited and waited for the world to feel like it was moving in the right direction again as divided as the country seems to be. I'm a first-generation American, and I think it's just been an interesting study of what patriotism means and who it should include and who it currently excludes that should be included. And I just feel really hopeful for the first time in four years. Anyhow, today we have such a fun guest. Author Kitty Cook will be here. She is bubbly and enthusiastic, and I loved speaking with her. But first... It's time for some bookish news. The Strand Bookstore in New York put out the call for help to readers, and help came in the form of 25,000 orders in one weekend, resulting in over $170,000 worth of sales. As I've reported before, independent bookstores are really struggling during the pandemic, including my own local indie, Diesel Books. Interestingly enough, Or perhaps ironically, the owner of the Strand, Nancy Bass Wyden, purchased $60,000 to $200,000 worth of stock in Amazon back in June. This became public because she's married to someone who holds office in Oregon, and public officials need to disclose their more hefty financial transactions. Welcome to the new wild and wacky world of literature, an effort to put out literary portable toilets. When users enter the public restroom, motion sensors activate speakers that will then read an audiobook to them. The think tank behind this idea is Geometry Singapore, which is an audiobook service available in 22 countries. The literary stalls were rolled out earlier this year in Singapore. Once they leave the potty, users are able to scan a code in order to finish the rest of their story they began while doing their business. I tend to take the temperature in terms of how long the pandemic will go on for from UCLA, where I'm employed as a creative writing instructor. Their most recent communication about in-person instruction states that winter quarter, which runs from January to March, will all be online. This timeline has been recently confirmed by Penguin Random House, who announced that it has extended its open license of online story time and read aloud videos through the end of March, which is great because it means that books are able to reach a wide audience of children through Zoom and other online experiences. Without the extension of these licenses, a teacher couldn't upload, let's say, a read aloud of Runaway Bunny onto YouTube without potential copyright infringement and a lawsuit from a publisher. Just what teachers need right now after everything they're going through. I am thrilled to introduce you all to our guest today, author Kitty Cook, and I absolutely love the way she describes herself in her bio, which I will read to you. She is a book chef based out of Seattle, specializing in salty heroines, spicy plot lines, and semi-sweet endings that hit the spot. 
With two energetic kids and a very patient husband, Kitty spends her free time exploring the Pacific Northwest in the sun and curled up with a book in the rain. Her first novel, Sleeping Together, won a 2019 Silver Ippy for Best First Book and a 2019 Indie Reader Discovery Award for Best Romance. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and Salon.com under a different, less ridiculous name. <laughs> it's the best bio ever. Hi, Kitty. <laughs> Hello. How are you? I am good, thanks. How are you doing during this season of quarantine? I mean, I don't, I feel like Grey Gardens now, you know, like I'm just suddenly I, I want to like rewatch this documentary and experience what it's like to be cooped up in a filthy house with, you know, your family. Do you have cats? You, you need some cats if you're going to go Grey Garden. Oh, you're right. You're right. No, I have the filth, but not the cats. So I'm halfway there. So I had the great pleasure of reading Sleeping Together. And it's one of those books where I remember exactly where I was when I read it. I was on a road trip to Big Bear with my family. I was totally happily zoning them out. And while I do have the ability to read in the car, I usually can't do it for too long. But I literally could not put the book down. And I know it's described as a romance, which listeners will know it's not usually my thing. But I have to say, this is one of those books that I wish wasn't boxed into that category because I feel like it expanded out so far beyond the romance genre. Yeah, I I think the fact that I included it in romance is um, controversial because I've had people uh, leave reviews that were like, this is not romance, how dare you? And then I've had uh, readers especially dudes who have been like, I actually really enjoyed this book. This isn't romance, you know, so you can't please everybody. But I think what I wanted to do was um, I feel very passionate about the romance industry. Uh, it's, you know, books by women for women, uh, people, women making money off, you know, stories where women live happily ever after, which doesn't always happen in the real world. So I think romance kind of gets um, a bad rap. I think it's all those things. It was cerebral. It was surreal. It was speculative. It was just everything you would want in a book. And what I really loved about it is I didn't know where it was going. And I think maybe that's my hang up with the romance genre in summation is that I feel like I know where the path is taking me. And so I love books that just gut punch surprise me. And your book absolutely did that. Oh, yay. Thank you. So before I ask you a few questions, let me just tell readers a little bit about the book. So in it, Vanessa, who goes by Nessa, has been having trouble sleeping because she's having a lot of anxiety in life, in particular because her husband is really putting on the pressure to have a child. She's just not interested and doesn't know how to tell the person that she loves that she doesn't want children. She works as a clinical drug trial assistant in Seattle, and her job isn't so demanding, so she spends a lot of her time at work chit-chatting, or perhaps we can call it flirting, with her coworker Alton. And Nessa discovers that Alton has been stealing capsules of a new sleeping pill called Morphium. And when he's confronted, he explains that the dreams he's been having after taking this pill, uh, the dreams are incredible. He makes it sound so amazing, in fact, that Nessa decides to try the drug herself. And soon she's not only sleeping well again, but having these really wonderfully lucid dreams. Nessa and Alton discover that they can actually find one another in their dreams. And the book begs the question, if someone hooks up in a dream because they've taken a pill, does it count as infidelity? 
This is a book about boundaries and desire. It's funny and poignant and yes, romantic, but also speculative and oh, so unique. I absolutely love this book so much and I'm thrilled to read the sequel, Poison Dream. So my first question for you, Kitty, is where in the world did you get the idea for this wildly innovative book? Well, I, I have to you know, go on record by saying I'm, I'm married to a man who's wonderful. I absolutely love my husband. So let me just put that out there because uh, in the book, Ness is dreaming about another guy. And, and again, like you said, it's awkward. Is she cheating on him or, you know, and I think um, where I got the idea, it, it all kind of came out of the Me Too movement. There's definitely some office politics involved in the book. And Ness has kind of um, some trauma in her past. And I was, you know, Me Too happened then and I wanted to sort of explore like what happens when women are faced with these things, not only at the time, but also years later. And like, how do you um, keep living your life when it took such a weird turn in the past? And in addition to that, I was having a lot of conversations with the men in my life, very sweet, well-meaning men, um, who didn't really understand the Me Too movement. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could just take a pill and, you know, give someone your mind? If you can find that pill, I'd happily stay in quarantine for the rest of my life. So let's work on that. How did you know that this book was part of a series as opposed to a one-off? Is that something that you knew when you were going into writing it? Or did you figure that out once you completed it? Um, I wanted to do uh, a trilogy just, you know, uh, this is my first book and I um, published it independently. So I was thinking, oh, well, you know, you get the readership, you know, it, it rolls. It makes sense to make a trilogy. Um, but then I realized it's really hard to market a sequel. So, so that's why the book stopped it, too. But uh, the, the, the Sleeping Together is about mostly sort of Ness and her coworker. And then the sequel goes into sort of how Ness feels about her husband. And it felt important to kind of give that character equal attention. What's interesting about both the men in her life is they're both wonderful. They're both really nice guys. So there's no clear cut, you know, who does she belong with? Um, you could go either way. And so, but I think at the end of the second book, it's clear the decision she makes is the right one. Tell us a little bit about your path to becoming a writer. Oh, man. Um, I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. I feel like every writer says that. And um, I, my wonderful husband, who I mentioned before, uh, he and I met, this is a long story, I'm sorry. He and I met in Japan, uh, but he's Australian. And so I moved to Australia with him and I couldn't work. And so he said, what's something you've always wanted to do? Uh, you can do it now, now that you have all this free time. And so I started writing uh, and at the time, it was a memoir about our time in Japan. And I went and got my MFA in creative writing. And I worked on this memoir for like a dec, literally a decade. And I got an agent. I got two agents. Nobody wanted to buy it because apparently you can't write a memoir when you're 20, which I totally get now. So um, fast forward, I was working kind of in a, for a romance uh, imprint in Seattle. And I decided like, hey, you know, I'm just going to try and independently published this romance novel because I knew romance novels, maybe not because it was one, but uh, yeah. And I put it out there and it was 
so much fun. It was way more fun than waiting for like agents and book deals and, and trying to get validated. So uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, just do it, I guess is my writing motto. Can you share what your regular kind of daily, if, if it's possible during these crazy times, what is your regular writing practice? What does that look like? Oh, uh, well, when I had, I have a day job, but that day job used to require me to go to an office, which was great because I would carve out my lunch hour. I just like deep throat a burrito and then I would go and I would write for an hour and it was pretty reliable, you know, like it, it felt, it felt right and good. And you know, there was a good cadence now that I'm working from home with my husband and homeschooling or virtual schooling with my two children, the writing is just kind of here and there whenever I can get to it. So, uh, yeah, ask me next year. <laughs> Hopefully 2021 will be a bit more productive. Sounds like every writer I have talked to this past year. So I'm, I'm a little nervous to ask this next question, but what are you working on now? And it could just be, what are you thinking about someday sitting down and working on? I'm really bad at like the one sentence description you're supposed to have. It takes place in a water world future in a skyscraper that's run entirely by women uh, and because they threw out all the men. Again, more Me Too themes for you. And they keep a few men around to uh, populate, you know, repopulate the, the population, <laughs> repopulate uh, the numbers living in this tower. But uh, the men kind of have to compete in gladiatorial combat to determine their stud fees. I know I'm I'm loving your face right now. So it's like Gladiator meets Sea Biscuit meets Reverse Handmaid's Tale in the future. My face is saying all the yeses in the world to everything you just said. If you need an author blurb, come to me. You just sold me. I so look forward to reading Poison Dream and finding out where Nessa's adventures take her next. And now on to the books. So I am starting with my favorite pick today, and that is the nonfiction book, Why Fish Don't Exist, a story of loss, love, and the hidden order of life by Lulu Miller, recommended to me by my friend Bill. So thank you, Bill. You may recognize Lulu Miller's name from shows like Radiolab or This American Life. This book is nonfiction with a little bit of memoir thrown in for good measure, but the central story revolves around a scientist named David Starr Jordan, who was this American ichthyologist, among other things, and he's credited with discovering a fifth of the world's fish in his time. He would keep samples of each of these fish preserved in bottles on shelves at his home. And during the San Francisco 1906 earthquake, the entire collection toppled and was destroyed. There were just fish all over the place. But he was able to sew back on the nameplates uh, to most of the fish, not all. It's hard to talk about this book in a linear fashion because it just covers so much. David Starr Jordan was a very complicated man. He was a brilliant ichthyologist. He was Stanford University's first president. But it seems as though each time Lulu Miller, the author, builds him up, she discovers something equally damning about him. For example, like the fact that he was a staunch eugenicist. So in between the well-researched sections of Jordan's life, 
Miller also intertwines a tumultuous event occurring in her own life that, like the 1906 earthquake, shattered her own world. Included throughout the book are also these wonderful renderings by Kate Samworth. This is a book about philosophy, education, taxonomy, loss. It's a book that's full of surprise and intrigue, and I love that I never quite knew where it was going. All of a sudden, you'd turn a page and there would be an accusation of murder or how Jordan's ideas about science could be measured vis-a-vis Darwin's. And the title of the book comes from this idea that recent research eschews certain biological hierarchies, which leads to the conclusion that the classification of fish doesn't actually exist anymore, but I'm still going to call a fish a fish. Above all, the notion is reinforced that science is always constant, never fixed. The moment that humans feel absolute in their assertions about something in the world is the moment a new discovery is made that turns everything on its head. And it made me wonder what scientific truths, and I'm making air quotes here behind my microphone, what truths do we hold that will be dismantled during our own lifetime? And again, the book is Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Loss, Love, and the Hidden Order of Life by Lulu Miller. Kitty, what is your first pick? Uh, well, speaking of nonlinear storylines, um, I'd like to recommend This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. Uh, I should mention this is science fiction, and it won the Hugo Award this year for Best Novella. And it's a relatively short read, but jam-packed with absolutely beautiful language. It's a gorgeous book about two It's sort of like a spy versus spy situation with two women, both on opposite ends of the time war, who end up writing each other letters and maybe developing um, a kind of romance. And so it's it's a bit like, well, how are they going to get out of this if they're enemies in the in the time war? But the book is just so rich and just uh, gorgeously written. And the two characters are named Red and Blue. And they go on about, you know, cornflowers and magma and they all these like gorgeous red and blue um, uh, nicknames for each other. It was it was very lyrical. And so just keep that in mind. I, I, I found it hard to like curl up with it, you know, and like eat a bowl of popcorn. But uh, it was really, really gorgeous. I, I recommend it. And it was called This Is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. Next up for me is The Orchard by David Hopin. This is a compelling coming-of-age novel, but it's definitely an adult novel and not a YA novel, about identity. It's about a 17-year-old named Ari whose father's work promotion forces the family to move from his devout Orthodox Jewish community in Brooklyn to a much more modern version of this life in Florida, and he experiences a seismic cultural shift around him. He's still at an Orthodox school, but here in Florida, his peer group experiments with drugs and and women, and they drive around in luxury cars, and they participate in all the pleasures of secular life. Ari's newfound freedom causes him to question everything he's previously believed in. I especially love the idea of a young adult actively questioning the choices that their parents have made for them in terms of life philosophy and religion. This is a book about transformation and identity, and although it's being compared to The Secret History, which is a book that I absolutely loved, I think this is a bit misleading because it's really very much its own original novel. 
It's a book about family, freedom, and the slippery slope of religious interpretation. And again, that is The Orchard by David Hopin. And a special thank you to HarperCollins and NetGalley for the advanced review copy. Kitty, what is your second book? I guess uh, along a similar theme of um, cultural education, I think I would like to recommend How to Be Less Stupid About Race on Racism, White Supremacy, and the Racial Divide. This is by Crystal Marie Fleming, and I picked it up uh, a couple months ago during the height of the Black Lives Matter um, resurgence, if you will. And I thought, because of the title, How to Be Less Stupid About Race, I thought it would be like anti-racism for dummies and like a good um, intro book on the subject. Uh, as a <laughs> so as a white woman, I was like, oh, this this should be you know easy and. The book was easy. I think one of my favorite lines is in the intro where uh, Fleming says, I'm going to wig snatch uh, racism in America. So like the um, it's it's very fun and and like it's it's an excitingly written book. But at the same time, it spares nothing. It was very eye opening about um, the anti-racism movement and uh, just from sort of like black women, the plight of black women in America, uh, as well as sort of the failings of the Obama administration, which I thought were really interesting. And so while I I don't think it's a great intro to anti-racism book, I thoroughly liked it though. You know, I I liked how caustic it was and, and it definitely changed my mind on a lot of things. And the book is called How to Be Less Stupid About Race on Racism, White Supremacy, and the Racial Divide by Crystal Marie Fleming. I had not heard about that book, so I am going to add it to my list of two reads. My last pick also talks about race, but in a much more subtle way, and it is called Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. I had an interesting experience with this book that I'm going to try and explain with a food analogy. So let's say you go to the ice cream store and you order strawberry ice cream. We'll pretend it's non-dairy ice cream since listeners know I've been on this vegan journey for four months. But let's say they give you pistachio instead of your strawberry and you're so disappointed because it's not strawberry. But then you taste the pistachio and the more you think about it, the more the flavor grows on you and you can't stop thinking about it. So this is exactly what happened to me with this novel. It was sold as a pandemic thriller and I am a masochist and I've read a lot of those over the past year and they are fast and busy and action-packed. And even though we're living in a pandemic, they somehow distract me from my own pandemic and remind me how much worse it could be. (laughs) But this book is not that. And at first I was irritated, but then once I stopped being disappointed that it wasn't the thing I thought it was, I was able to relax into it. And I ended up not only liking it, but really thinking deeply about it long after it ended. So Ruman Alam has written three previous books, I believe, two of which I've read and liked, and those were Rich and Pretty and That Kind of Mother. Uh, And this feels nothing like those. Um, So this is about New Yorkers, Amanda and Clay, who are parents to a teenage son and daughter. They are all very excited for their Airbnb home that they've rented, where they will be vacationing outside of town in the Hamptons. And they quickly ease their way into vacation. They're 
cooking and drinking wine and swimming in the pool and walking in the woods. And the reader knows that danger is coming, but we don't know what form it will take. Cut to a knock at the door late at night, and it's the alleged owners of the rental house, George and Ruth. Um, And Clay and Amanda exhibit very racist assumptions towards George and Ruth, who are Black, because they're suspicious that a Black couple would be the owner of this luxurious home in the woods. The owners inform them that there's been a blackout in the city, and they would very much like to stay in the home that they own because they're too scared to return to the city. They don't know what's caused the blackout. They don't have a ton of information, but they're worried about the ramifications of being in the city during such an event. So a lot of what occurs is a deep dive into each character's psychology in this moment of not knowing. The internet is down, cutting them off from the outside world. The birds are silent as though they fled. It says if someone were to tell you that a terrible thing will imminently occur, but you don't know what the thing is or when it will happen. So the six of them are essentially waiting with suspicion together. Sometimes the most terrifying thing about disaster is not the act of disaster itself, but the ways in which our minds construct our own individualized worst case scenarios. It's essentially the core of all anxiety, which as a person with low grade anxiety, this book was not an easy read during these anxious times. It's a very different kind of horror novel where what's scary turns inward. It's already been optioned for a movie starring Julia Roberts, who will play Amanda, and Denzel Washington will play the homeowner George, which is absolutely hysterical because at one point in the book, I think it's Amanda who describes George as looking like Denzel Washington. And again, that's Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam. I'm writing that down. That sounds wild. All of the books we've recommended today are listed in the show notes section of the podcast and at booksaremypeople.com with a link through to my bookshop.org store, Books Are My People, including Kitty Cook's novel, Sleeping Together. So go get yourself a copy. Kitty, thank you so much for stopping by today. It was an absolute pleasure having you. And if listeners want to know more about where they can go to see more of you, where can they go? Um, I'm on Instagram more than I should be at Kitty Cook Books. And I have a website, kittycookbooks.com. I will leave a link to both of those in the show notes. And Kitty's Instagram account is hysterical. You should all follow it. Up next for me is Afterland by Lauren Bukes. And Kitty, what are you going to read next? I am one chapter into A Memory Called Empire, which uh, is another Hugo Award. It was the Hugo Award winner this year. And it's science fiction. And it's about... um, you can like in the future you can assume the memories of a dead person in order to like do a new job or something so it's like you're living with a dead person's memories in your mind oh that's creepy you're the one like it you're the one with the creepy (laughs) cabin (laughs) i guess we both like creepy is what we've uh, come to acknowledge on this show today we've had a breakthrough Thank you. Breakthrough, breakdown, whatever. (laughs) Same thing. I hope you all have a wonderfully bookish week. Bye, everyone.